Welcome to the Forge Leadership Podcast. In this series, Simon Barrington and Johnny Abbott are joined each week by emerging leaders from the millennial generation. Today, our guest is David Lawrence. David is passionate about applying his faith in the area of politics and is currently senior political advisor working for the trade justice movement. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to the Forge Millennial Leadership Podcast. My name is Johnny Abbott. I'm the co-host and I'm here with Simon Barrington. Hi, Simon. Hi, Johnny. Good to be back again. We've got another interview here with David Lawrence. Welcome, David. Thanks. It's great to be here. Good, good, good. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing very well, yes. Fantastic. Um, David, uh, fascinating to have you on. Uh, you've got a, a great uh, history in terms of what you're involved in and what you're involved in now uh, and hoping to uh, get through that in the half hour that we've got. Uh, David, uh, kick us off. Tell us, what is it that you do? So I'm the senior political advisor at a small pressure group called the Trade Justice Movement. Uh, so we work on international trade issues, trying to make trade rules work better for people and planet. Um, it's a relatively recent job before that I was working for a number of different Labour MPs in Parliament and before that I was a community organiser in North London. Wow and so how did you get into that because that's um, uh, not a role in which many people would get to do and a, a role in which I think many people would even try and shy away from it's quite a uh, it sounds like big responsibilities how did you manage to get into that sphere of uh, particularly politics? Yeah well um, straight out of university, I was uh, lucky enough to begin a program called the, the Buxton Leadership Program, which uh, is quite unique in the way that it aims to combine experience working in Westminster with uh, experience doing community organizing in inner city communities in London. Um, the idea being that you get this exposure to these two different sides of what politics is about. Um, how it affects ordinary people, but also how policies are made at the higher level. Uh, and so that gave me an initial political grounding. Um, and so I went on to work full time for an MP and, as I said, recently took on this role, uh, which is very much still in the Westminster space. It's it's lobbying, essentially. So trying to influence civil service and MPs um, for a particular cause around trade. Great. And how does that happen? What does that look like day to day? Yeah, well, it's a, it's a combination of, um, I suppose, traditional uh, lobbying, so um, identifying uh, things going through Parliament or opportunities um, in politics uh, related to the issues that we work on, uh, building relationships with MPs and Lords in particular, um, and uh, working with them to design policy to raise the profile of particular issues um, so it might look like getting certain parliamentary questions in or ensuring that certain debates on trade justice issues are led. Um, another side of the job is what you might call policy as opposed to lobbying, uh, which is more about research and developing policy positions. As we represent a very large number of members, including um, groups like the Church of England and Tear Fund and CAFOD, um, we need to make sure that their views are taken into account when we develop policy positions so that what we're saying is in line with what our members want on trade. So it's a combination of uh, traditional lobbying and policy. And, and what are the big um, issues at the moment, David, for you in um, the trade justice arena that those groups are seeking to um, uh, represent into Parliament? Well, as you can imagine, it's very much dominated by Brexit at the moment. Brexit mm -hmm. means a lot for trade. Um, it means a lot for justice as well, I would say. Uh, all of our members have an interest in that, want to know how it will play out. So part of my job is to 
um, try and work out what's going on, uh, reading a lot of analysis and newspaper articles um, so that I can explain to our members who are interested uh, what Brexit might mean. Uh, equally, we're trying to use Brexit as a, uh, a platform, an opportunity to influence trade policy. So leaving the EU does mean that the UK will have will have our own trade policy for the first time in 40 years. Um, the question is what that trade policy looks like. Is it going to be good news for developing countries and the environment? Um, or is it going to be uh, rapid trade deals that deregulate standards, um, which many of our members are more concerned about? Uh, so that's that's why I took on the job, really, because there is this particular opportunity at the moment with Brexit to think creatively about what we want trade to look like. Hey, there are definitely huge uh, tensions going on there and grateful for people like yourself who are willing to step up to the mark and, uh, and, and um, yeah, definitely tackle some of the issues going on at the moment. Um, very unique space in which you're using your voice, very unique space in which you're using your leadership, um, particularly with someone who has faith. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about how you got into politics and how your faith influenced that? Yeah, it's a good question. I think... Uh... To be brutally honest, I, I could see myself working in politics, um, even if I wasn't a Christian. I think as someone who's sort of quite nerdily interested in what's going on and who likes to think <laughs> I'm right, uh, it's probably quite a natural fit. And I think um, the large number of nerdy people who think they're right in politics is probably why we're in the situation we're in. Um, yeah. But I think Christianity does uh, definitely bring a lot to my politics and uh, I think affects both um, how I'm motivated to work in politics and act politically uh, and also affects the content of my political beliefs. Um, I think Christianity brings an element of uh, pessimism to politics or realism perhaps and also a whole lot of hope. Uh, and I say pessimism because I think as Christians we don't, uh, we don't believe that politics can solve everything. Um, I think the Christian view is that uh, sin is more than just a set of bad policies which you can vote in or out um, mm. or at least it's, it's not merely a set of bad policies mm. uh, but it's something that's at the core of the human condition um, and that means that to some extent whoever we elect whatever we do politically there's always going to be uh, there's always going to be injustice we shouldn't expect any ideology however radical or new to change that fundamental so it brings a level of um, I'd say realism to politics. I see the limits of it in a way that perhaps not everyone in politics does. A lot of people see it as a a thing that can can really solve everything. Um, that's not how I see it. But equally, Christianity does bring, as I said, a whole lot of hope um, to politics. And the fact that Christianity has this realistic spin on politics hasn't stopped Christians throughout the church's history fighting for justice and for transforming society for the better. Um, and I think that's because the New Testament tells us that although sin is part of the human condition, there is such a thing as redemption. And Jesus's life, death and resurrection was uh, just the beginning of um, what, to paraphrase N.T. Wright, he calls um, the revolution, the, the beginning of the revolution, which we're sort of still a part of um, recreating God's kingdom on earth. So I think Christianity definitely changes my politics. Uh, I think it it adds that level of um, pragmatism and realism about what the limits of politics, what it's there for, what it can do. But equally, it gives me a lot of hope, particularly when the going gets tough and when ideologies fail or parties, parties I want to win don't win. Um, it gives me a hope in something deeper and more long term. 
Mm. And how, how do you find there are any tensions with that as well, uh, being able to express faith in politics? Yeah, I think there are. I think we're in a, uh, a funny place at the moment where the church still actually has a lot of uh, influence and a lot of privileged access to particularly to the higher levels of politics. Um, so I, I work a lot with lords at the moment, and it's sort of quite bizarre that there are this loads of bishops in the House of Lords and plenty of uh, Christian MPs and lords, more, more so, I think, proportionally than, than the wider population. Uh, so we have an unusual amount of access at a time when probably overall as a society, we're, we're moving away from, um, I suppose, a more Christian culture. Uh, I think that we're still working out as a church how, how we deal with that. I, I remember being in a, a meeting a couple of years ago, um, which was uh, a number of church leaders who were meeting with a minister to talk about the refugee crisis at the time. This was the, the Cameron government. And I remember thinking, this is, this is crazy that churches have just got this privileged access that we can just meet with this minister and we can tell them um, the, the concerns that we're hearing in, in local churches and uh, from Christians around the country about the refugee crisis. And uh, the minister was running late. And so we had uh, a fair amount of time where we sort of grumbled to each other about how the government wasn't doing enough on refugees, that uh, we really wanted to see a change in the, the tone and the rhetoric. And we thought the churches should be included more in, uh, in addressing the refugee crisis. Um, and then when the minister came in, uh, and was there, I remember being quite shocked by how instantly the tone of the conversation changed. And immediately we were being very uh, thankful to the minister and sort of complimenting him on all that he'd done. And uh, in my opinion, not not really addressing the issue and not being very firm with him about what we as a church uh, thought we need to be doing about refugees and um, how we, we weren't happy with what the government had been doing. And I think that example is indicative of how we have this privileged access um, but we're often afraid to utilize it or we're, we're maybe a bit uncomfortable with it and we're aware that um, we might not have that forever. And so that affects the way that we interact with power. So, uh, David, you've had uh, the wonderful privilege of um, interacting with uh, MPs and uh, ministers and uh, lords and uh, over the last few years. Um, as you've observed them um, up close, uh, what is it that you admire um, in uh, leadership? Uh, so what have you learned that you admire? And then secondly, what's challenged you um, in, in that as well? Hmm. That's, a, that's a really interesting question. I think one thing I really noticed in Parliament was just how important relationships are. Um, I think that's become a bit of a, a trope in the sort of um, management consulting world. But it, it really is true that um, the MPs who will have the most impact, who will uh, have the most hope of becoming ministers, who will get their causes um, attention are the ones who have the best relationships, the most friends, essentially. Um, it makes such a difference. Uh, and I think that that, that, that um, one tension with that is that although relationships are incredibly important, your average MP is incredibly paranoid. Um, and mm -hmm. it's this sort of, Parliament's this slightly mad mix of 
everyone realizing that relationships and allies are absolutely essential, but everyone looking over their back constantly and worrying about who's going to stab them. Um, and I think that's, uh, that, that's partly just the political system is MPs are constantly worried about losing their seat. Um, they, uh, they spend so long campaigning to get there that mm. the, the most fundamental instinct, particularly if you're a backbench MP with, without a really big majority or who hasn't been there very long, your most fundamental instinct is survival and mm. how to ensure that. But you also know that if you're going to achieve anything that you set out to go into politics for, you need to be building these relationships. You need to be becoming vulnerable, essentially, to build trust with other members. Mm. Um, and every time you're doing that, you're risking... Um, them knowing more about you, them using that against you in some way. Uh, so it's this fascinating mix of really learned a lot about the importance of relationships in politics, while also realizing that there is this fundamental underlying paranoia. I mean, one of the interesting things from the research that we did with um, nearly 500 millennials last year was this whole focus on relationships um, and how mm. important they are to a uh, younger generation of leaders um, coming through and how uh, vulnerability and trust um, are the bedrock of those relationships being formed. So how do you see that um, younger MPs, um, younger activists like yourself are changing the system changing the culture um bringing a new way of uh doing things uh, do you see any of that happening do you see any changes happening do you see anything in the millennial generation which is really going to shape things differently yeah i i think so i i haven't had much interaction with um young mps and in fact i don't, I don't even know if there are any or met there certainly aren't many MPs that would count as millennials. But I think that's right, that millennials are more comfortable with, I think, more comfortable with vulnerability. I think it's something that we we value more. People in positions of authority are willing to be honest and frank about their weaknesses. And I think we also see the role that that plays in developing relationships. Um, so yeah, I, I'd love to see more of that in Parliament. I, I would hope that the... My, my worry is that the, the system that the way that we elect politicians, the way that we treat them, the way the media treats them, um, encourages, fosters a certain level of what I call paranoia earlier, mm. where people are really afraid of displaying any weakness because of how it might be used against them. Mm. Um, but you're right, I think there is this culture change among millennials, and it would be amazing if that did filter through to to the MPs of 10 years time or even five years time and that of course might require changes to the system as well as <laughs> changes in the way that people interact with one another as you read the the research around culture was there anything specific that that uh impacted you or any observations you have about the different types of culture that that millennials are, are bringing in i found the um the research around purpose really interesting i think uh that certainly matches up to my own experience and also thinking about my friends and the kind of things we were taking into account when we were at the end of university and thinking about what kind of jobs we wanted, um, the importance of finding purpose, meaningful work, uh, and, and that being a more important thing perhaps than stability or even salary. Um, obviously, there are concerns around making ends meet for millennials. We have a housing crisis and so on. But uh, I, I think that that's that's really right. I think also this morning I read an interesting 
article um, about how Said Business School at Oxford University um, are marketing their MBAs very much in terms of how these skills will um, help you pursue social justice or um, change the world, live a meaningful career rather than just make money. Uh, so I think companies and universities are, and employers are cottoning onto this idea that uh, actually millennials care about purpose rather than um, rather rather than sort of more traditional things that you might take into account when you're thinking about your career. I suppose I think one important distinction is bet- between doing something. I, I think purpose is a sufficiently vague term that it can mean just I want to do something that's my passion, or it can mean something that I want to do because it genuinely makes the world a better place. Right. Um, and I think there is, there, is a, there, there is a difference between wanting a sense of purpose because it feels good and wanting a sense of purpose because it will change the world. And I think it's great that millennials are confident in expressing their individuality and they're um, willing to challenge traditional career routes or traditional cultures and workplaces. But I think it needs to be more than a self-serving mentality of... Um, I just want to find a job that's really me or like really suitable for, you know, my individual passions. It's interesting that you make that that distinction, actually, David, I've not heard anyone make that distinction Mm. before. Um, Do you see, um, do you see different groups within the millennials who, who are seeking purpose for um, passion and purpose for <laughs> um, uh, meaning and, and, and transformation. Do you see that happening amongst your peers? Yeah, I mean, I think it's um, it's probably a bit of both for all of us. I mean, yeah. politics is definitely something that I enjoy and feel passionate about. But I think as a Christian, I'm called to be more than just an individual with passions and desires, but also called to lay those down and seek God's kingdom. Mm-hmm. And actually, I need to have that element as well to my career to my political journey in order for it to be truly meaningful um and i think in in politics is a good example of this because often people are drawn in by the fun bits like uh going on rallies or joining debates or or being on television um but actually most of politics is done in fairly dingy town halls and parliamentary committee (laughs) meetings which really aren't that glamorous or that exciting or that interesting and I think to be able to stick at it when it becomes not only hard work, but also often just downright boring requires a commitment to something that's bigger than just one's own passion. And I think that's a, that's a sense of real purpose, um, which I think Christianity can bring. I think uh, a, a lot. It's not just Christians in politics who have that. Um, but I think when the going gets tough, you need that in addition to just um, what fulfills my own personal passions. And did you find that yourself when you were involved in the community organising and involved in that side of um, politics? Was that harder going um, and, and and more challenging? Um, and what did you learn through that process about leading as well? It, certainly, it was certainly a less natural fit. And that's partly why I did it, because I, I think I was very conscious that um, to go straight from studying PP at Oxford to working in parliament um it would be a very natural route in many ways and i wanted something that would take me out of my comfort zone a bit more and community organizing certainly did that i think one of the most one of the fascinating things about community organizing is that you really begin with people where they're at so rather than arriving with a um pre-written policy solution to their problems 
you spend your first months literally just meeting people for coffee and trying to work out what their uh what, what, the way we phrase it is often what what makes them angry um what are the issues that um that are on their minds what what things in the local area do they see as need needing to be changed and as a community organizer your job is simply to bring people together around those areas of common anger and turn that anger into a tangible and productive action um which is a slow process it takes a lot of time but when you have got people on board when you've got the force of the local community united you're actually able to do so much more than if you just arrived on your own with your own solution for a community's needs. Fantastic. Now, one, one last question from me before Johnny kicks in and, and asks our signature <laughs> questions uh, in a moment. And and uh, many people would say there is an absence of leadership in politics at the moment, that actually um, there's an absence of, of, of people who um, will really stick to their um, uh, passions and uh, beliefs and really go for it even when the going gets tough um, if there was one quality that you would wish to see more of in leaders uh, in, in the UK right now what would it be I don't know if there's a, a word that sums it up but I think I'd love to see leaders willing to turn around and uh, say that they have changed their minds or that they've got it wrong or that they, they've heard the argument from the other side and they, they concede it. Um, instead, there, there is this pressure to, um, to stick rigidly uh, in the face of evidence or in the face of popular opinion um, to, to what you held before. And, and that's something that I think partly we're, as a society, we're perhaps slightly guilty of expecting that from leaders. We, we sort of want them to be something impossible. We want them to be so principled that they don't change their minds, but also want them to be flexible enough to listen to our latest whim. Um, yeah. But I'd love to see more genuine uh, acceptance. I mean, say particularly with Brexit, I'd love to see someone come out and say, well, you know, this isn't actually how I expected it to turn out. Or actually the other side does have some important points to make on this, or the solution really isn't as clear cut as we've all been saying in our various different camps for the last two years. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I don't, I don't know if there's a simple, a single word that sums up that, but I think perhaps flexibility or willing to, willing to accept that one is wrong sometimes. Yeah, no, that's brilliant. Thank you. That's great. Hey, David, we, uh, we always ask a couple of questions um, to round off the podcast and be uh, good as always to get your thoughts. Um, uh, the first question is this, within your leadership, what's your greatest excitements and your greatest fears? I'll start with the fear. I think that there is um, an inherent loneliness to some extent to leadership. I think that uh, often it's being a fir the first person to move and then sort of to look behind you and check that people are actually following. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> it's not. I'm only laughing because I, I, I empathize with that completely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, it's not. Um, actually, in my current role, um, I wouldn't say that's the kind of leadership I'm doing, but I do remember at, at university when I was involved with setting up um, Just Love, uh, which was a Christian charity that helps students engage with social justice issues. Um, it certainly did often feel like we were stepping out and doing this thing for the first time and investing a lot into it and just really hoping that people would cotton on and, 
and and follow um and and so there's an inherent uh riskiness to that and as i said there there is an element of loneliness um obviously ideally you have a team around you but sometimes it does require being the first person to step out to propose something new and um to have a stab at it uh in terms of excitement i think increasingly what i'm excited by is is simply the, the possibility of genuinely creating an impact through leadership um so i'm i'm involved with uh, a group called effective altruism for christians and i won't go fully into detail uh, as to what that is right now but uh essentially it's about helping christians to think more about how uh our decisions and the way that we use our resources um genuinely create an impact um rather than just um reflecting good intentions uh and i think that leadership genuinely has the potential to do that and one thing that's always been true in politics and will continue to be the case after brexit is that it is small groups of individuals who have a shared sense of purpose who are committed to a cause and able to get over their differences they're the groups who will change things um whatever brexit holds whether the next few years hold it is those groups who hold the key to change in politics and that's the really exciting thing about leadership for me David, what's the greatest tension that you find within your leadership? I think there is this inherent tension in leadership between being able to cast a vision that's compelling and at the same time being able to listen to the views and be willing to change that vision um, based on the views of those who follow you. Um, And I have to say that I've, I've not always seen this done well in the church as it happens the church i go to at the moment i'm very impressed with the way that our um leaders take into account the views of the congregation uh but i don't think it's always done well i think it's also potentially um without wanting to say something too controversial here i think it's potentially an area where uh having jesus as a role model is a bit tricky because jesus as a leader is also the son of god and so he's he's right about everything by default um he's perfect but as human leaders we're we're not perfect and so actually we can't we shouldn't assume that just because we have an idea of what's right uh or what god's calling me to that therefore that is what's going to be right for my for my business for my congregation for my political party whatever it might be and part of being a good human leader is recognizing that you might be wrong about things Mm. uh being compelling about your vision and winning people over but Mm. also being able to change that vision Mm. um to genuinely listen to people's views not as a sort of formal consultation process that that then gets ignored but as a genuine i want to know your views we're we're in this together yes i'm leading but also i'm not perfect Mm. i think that's that's the biggest tension for me that's really interesting because one of the things that came out of the research was this desire for a shared sense of purpose um, amongst mm. millennials that actually being involved in the process, the collaborative process of generating um, the vision and having the voices heard actually brought much greater ownership and much greater commitment to uh, the vision. And, and that came mm. out much more stronger, much more strongly in the research than, than we imagined it would. Um, David, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Um, fascinating journey. If people want to um, find out more about the trade justice uh, movement, where do they go? Probably best just to look at our website, which is uh, tjm.org.uk. Um, I'm also on Twitter, so you can find me there. 
Fantastic. David Lawrence, thank you so much for joining us on the Forge Leadership Podcast uh, today. Thank you. All the best in, in, in your political activities and, and in the altruism activities as well. And we must bring you back on and ask you about that one day as well. <laughs> thank you very much. Thanks for listening. For more dedicated resources to equip emerging leaders, visit our new website, millennial-leader.com. And don't forget to catch up on the Forge Leadership Podcast at forge-leadership-podcast.com. Hi.